epistles. If you haven't been with us for some time, we started a new series a couple weeks ago from this wonderful little epistle, 1 Thessalonians. I'll read for us the entire chapter. It's 10 verses. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Years ago, we were on one of those family vacations driving a long distance in our car and we found ourselves stopping at a lot of fast food restaurants. And after a while, I began to tell my kids that you could tell once you walked in pretty quickly whether or not that fast food restaurant was under good management. You could just sense the smell, the cleanliness, the way it was operated, so we'd you know, get in the car afterwards and i say, well guys, was that under good management or bad management? <laughs> And the same is true when the grace of God is managing the life of a sinner. You can tell. That's essentially what this first chapter is about. When Paul and his friends came to this city to evangelize, there was no doubt their lives were under the management of the Spirit of Jesus and His grace. And once converted, there was no doubt the believers in Thessalonica were under the good management of the Spirit of Jesus and His grace. So let's look at this chapter from three perspectives. As the grace of God advances and brings people under the management of the Lord Jesus, what happens? What do we see? What are the features? 
So first of all, and you'll notice that the outline is like a thousand times shorter than last week. Do I get it? No, I don't need applause for that. <laughs> Number one, as the grace of God advances, you see what is noted is the quality of the human instrument. Verse five, our gospel came to you not only in word, yet we preached a message that was verbal, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. Look at the verb prove. Paul and his friends' conduct proved what? It proved their confession. The way they acted, carried themselves, treated other people, lived together, spoke, it proved that they belonged to Jesus. They confessed faith in Jesus. We belong to Christ. Christ has saved us. He laid down his life for us. He's given us eternal life. He sent us his spirit. We're his precious possession. He is our Lord. We answer to a higher authority. We are in the grip of the marvelous and unfailing mercy of Jesus Christ. <laughs> that was proved by the way they lived. They acted like Jesus. So Paul always strove for the overflow. He wanted the life of Jesus within to show up on the outside. The reality of the gospel shaped and constrained their behavior. It's kind of evangelism 101. You can't separate the message from the messenger. And one of the things I hate about myself is my hypocrisy is when I act or speak contrary to what I say I believe. I hate that incongruence. Years ago, I was doing a workshop on how to share your faith. And it was, I was um, sh sharing with the people in the workshop the struggle I was having at the time with my neighbor who let their dog run free and poop on my yard. And we had little kids. And you know, my kids are going to be playing in my yard, and they just open their door, and out goes the dog, and I had mess to clean up in my yard. And I was explaining in the workshop that I didn't know what to do about it because I didn't want to go to my neighbors and make my relationship with them about their dog and what he does in my yard. I wanted my relationship with them to be about Jesus. So it was kind of at a loss to know what to do. This one lady raises her hand and says, I'll tell you what I would do. I would put that poop in a bag and nail it to their front door. <laughs> yes, you're not getting the point of what I'm saying. <laughs> no discontinuity between the message and the messenger. And isn't that what we see in the glory of Christ? In Jesus, we see no variance between who he is and what he does. I love in the Gospel of John, chapter 8, where Jesus says to his disciples, I always do what pleases my Father. Even in his trial, is recorded at the end of the Gospel of John, 
Jesus basically says, what charge do you bring against me? Ask the people I've taught. Find out from the masses. He's essentially saying, I have revealed to you in the way I live the glory of God and the supreme excellence of humanity. So no wonder John begins his gospel saying, Jesus has come, the word made flesh, full of grace and truth. Jesus was full of grace and truth. What did you get when you saw Jesus, when you heard Jesus? Grace and truth. Constantly, without interruption, perfectly. Jesus is the beauty of holiness, the strength of conviction, the majesty of tenderness, compassion, wisdom, rebuke, and correction when it was necessary. Wherever Jesus saw human suffering, he alleviated it. Where human beings were broken and distorted by the fall, he couldn't keep his hands off of them, fixing it, setting them free from what enslaved them. Everything he did, beloved, was full of grace and truth, and just as Jesus lived for the sake of others, he was the most other-centered man ever to walk the face of the earth. Just as Jesus lived for the sake of others, Paul says that's how we evangelize the Thessalonians. Look at the last three words of verse 5. The kind of men we prove to be among you, for your sake. Those are three really powerful words. I want you to see Paul's logic. Here's his logic. We care passionately about Christ and we want Christ known. Premise one. We want you, Thessalonians, to love his loveliness. We want your lives to reflect Christ's glory and to bring Christ the honor he deserves. Ultimately, it's, it's all driven by God getting the glory, right? So, right? We want your lives to reflect his glory. But we recognize your first contact with Jesus is us. The people you work with who don't know Jesus, their first contact with Jesus is likely you. And so Paul says, how we live among you is terribly important. You can almost think Paul is hearing the echo of Jesus' words in John 13, 35. By this all men will know that I came, that you love one another. You can't separate the message from the messenger. So let me ask you to think about this. Are you a for-your-sake kind of person? How important is it to you? How consciously do you think, I don't want to put a lid on the glory of Jesus being radically other-centered. I have his DNA in my heart if I belong to him. Are you a for-your-sake kind of person when you get up in the morning? The way you treat your spouse for your sake? The way you live... Love your kids for their sake? Kids, the way you love your brothers and sisters, is it for their sake? Your relationships in and outside of the church, would people say, yeah, that person is marked by for the other's sake. I am not naturally that. I am naturally for Mike's sake. And that doesn't bring any glory to God. 
pray, think about, ask Jesus to transform you into a for your sake kind of person. Jesus, by his spirit, changes you to look like him and according to the text, not least in the way you suffer. See verse 6, Paul says, you became imitators of us and of the Lord. You received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Let me remind you of the sermon we saw. This is why Dory read from Acts 17 earlier in the service. Remind you that Paul came to Thessalonica from Philippi, where we're told in Acts 16, he was beaten with rods. That means he walked into Thessalonica with bruises. And what else, according to the text? Joy. And after they left, the believers in Thessalonica were persecuted. We're not told exactly how, but they were persecuted for aligning with Jesus Christ. The Jews didn't like it that they said Jesus was the Son of God. The Romans didn't like it because they believed Caesar was the Son of God. There was a price to pay for aligning with King Jesus. <laughs> There's only one king. Every other king, as James prayed earlier, owes their allegiance to Jesus. They suffered too, and they suffered with the same joy that Jesus, um, excuse me, that Paul suffered with. And I, look, that raises what question in your reading? Where does that come from? That wouldn't be my first inclination to rejoice when I'm beaten with rods. That wouldn't be my first. I'd go get a bigger stick. Where does it come from? It comes from a conviction, I am one with Jesus, and I may have to suffer the way Jesus suffered for the joy set before him, enduring the cross, despising the shame, to win me as his own. We suffer for Jesus with the assurance this isn't because God is punishing us. God is in control, and we suffer knowing that when people hate the message, they will shoot the messenger. This is the first point. We're asking when a life is under the management of the Spirit of Jesus, you can tell, and you could tell when grace was advancing among the Thessalonians and the quality of the human instrument, you can't separate the message from the messenger. Here's the other principle inherent in, that, in, in this part. Paul, uh, you can't give away what you don't have. Simple principle. Can't give away what you don't have. He says in verse 5, our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and full conviction. You may know that one of our founding fathers, Benjamin Franklin, not a Bible-believing Christian by any stretch of the imagination, but he loved listening to George Whitfield preach. George Whitfield is probably the most effective and famous evangelist in the history of the United States. 18th century preacher, George Whitfield. He had a real, um, uh, he had, he had, but Franklin was spellbound by Frank, um, Whitfield. And apparently one time Franklin was there listening to him preach and somebody standing next to him said, you don't believe what he's saying, why are you here? And Franklin responded, I don't, but he does. These brothers came to Thessalonica with a grace and inner conviction that was oozing out of them. 
And they weren't just giving facts about Jesus, as if I would hold up a piece of paper of a fire for you to see. Here's, here's a fire on a piece of paper. No. What they said about the grace of God was a fire. And it had the power to burn away human pride and unbelief. And it had a, a power to, to burn away blindness to the glory of God and to create an understanding and a longing for the grace of the gospel of Jesus. And as the fire of the Spirit burned in Paul and shone as he's evangelizing, what in fact did it illumine specifically? What do you think was the pinnacle of this revelation? What do you think when, when the day was over, Paul said, did I make this clear? Did the fire illumine this? What do you think that was? It was the cross of Jesus Christ. Scholars will tell you Jesus was probably crucified in 30 AD on a mount called Calvary or Golgotha outside the wall of Jerusalem at the time. Now in Palestine, in Jerusalem, let's just choose a period of 15 years. And for 15 years at noon on Friday, that was your day to go out, go, go walk by Calvary. Every Friday for 15 years you walked by Calvary, you saw Romans crucifying people. Lots of them. I mean, on the day Jesus is crucified, they need three crosses to take care of everyone's executions. I just want you to assume for 15 years on Friday, you walked by Calvary and you saw lots of men being crucified by the Romans. So here's this Friday, Good Friday, the year 30 AD. And you're looking at these three crosses and they, all three men look just like normal men. And you look again at the one in the middle. And there's a fire lit. And the word of God begins to testify. Keep looking. That man is different. That man is utterly and perfectly, flawlessly righteous. He never sinned. And the fire keeps shining light, and you look again. That man claimed to be God. He did and said things only God could do and say. Keep looking, let the light shine some more. He is there in horrible anguish, suffering the word of a God promises, bearing the judgment due God's enemies. You're stunned. You kind of want to look away at this point. No, keep looking at the man in the middle. Let the fire of the gospel burn light. What do you see? Oh, he's dying in my place. In love, he's dying for me. And I hear him saying, Father, forgive him. He knows not what they do. And all of a sudden, by the light of the gospel, you are experiencing the tender mercy of God. You're not getting what you deserve, Jesus is. The grace of God, you're getting a salvation you could never earn yourself. Keep looking, you see the blood. And the word of God testifies and you begin to believe in that blood, all my sins are washed away. That blood, that blood on that one man, a man just like thousands that have been crucified in Palestine on Friday during that time period, that blood is promised by God to cleanse my soul forever. Ever, the moment I trust it.
and don't stop looking. Go three days later to his tomb and take the fire and light. And what do you see? You don't see the body. You see the, the shroud, the burial shroud. The, but there's no body. And the Holy Spirit now confirms what that man did for you indeed is the promise of God to save you. If you don't have that assurance, the fire's not going to burn. May he give it to you right now. Second point. The liveliness of the grace message. Well, if you look at chapter 1, you go, what in the world's going on? You conclude this. Grace is not static. When the grace of God invades a human heart, it unlocks lips. It liberates them to speak. And we're all like this, whether we're religious or not. You find a good movie, you find a good restaurant, you find a good shortcut to work, you want to tell somebody about it. You want to share good things. It's, it's impulsive, it's natural for us. So Paul writes in verse 8, Not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so we have, don't need to say anything. I mean, this is a missionary's dream come true. He evangelizes an area, and he's done with the area. They're going to take care of it all. It's just amazing. That's why I love this church. Man, they did evangelism powerfully. This verb sounded forth. In the ancient Greek, it was used to describe thunder and a trumpet blare that tells you that what the Thessalonians believed was clear it was clear they believed it, and what they believed was clear. It's clear they believed it. Doesn't mean they were right. Doesn't mean they were right. But there was conviction. People can be wrong and have conviction. Conviction doesn't make something true. But they had conviction. It was clear they believed it, and what they believed was clear. Can we surmise, beloved, that the message of Jesus was precise, not wandering, sensible, not unintelligible, discernible, not vague. It was a verbal witness to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's hard to imagine they ran down bunny trails and got sidetracked by non-essentials. They had something to say, and I'll tell you what it was not. And I say this because I know Christians that go to church that believe what I'm about to say. They did not say this, Jesus is true for me, but you have to find your own way to be right with God. They did not say that. That's called religious relativism. And you may believe what I, what I just said. You may believe Jesus is the way for me, but I would never impose that belief on somebody else. That's religious relativism, and it's basically founded on two pillars. One, it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're sincere. Two, no religion can claim a corner on the truth. They all ultimately get to God in their own way. And I would like to respond to those two pillars, if you believe that. Let me humbly ask you to think about this in response. It is possible to be sincerely wrong. Sincerity is no test of the truth. I could go in my medicine cabinet, think I'm popping an Advil in the middle of the night, and if you slipped in and put cyanide in it, I'm dead, no matter how sincere I believe it's Advil. Sincerity is never a test of the truth. Never. Secondly, to stand on a corner and claim that no religion has a corner on the truth is to stand on a corner of the truth because you assume to know absolutely and definitively that no religion has a corner on the truth. That is an absolute view of religion. 
it is actually a self-refuting statement because if you claim that no religion has a corner on the truth, you're on a corner claiming that truth. Do you see that? That's why I could never believe in religious relativism. And that is not the message that turned the world upside down and no Christian ever lost their head in the history of the world for saying, Jesus is true for me but not for you. Have you heard about the evangelical programs in the early church? Have you done a historical study about the programs they had in the first century church and the evangelism programs? Have you heard about them? You haven't? It's because there weren't any. Sorry, I set you up. <laughs> There's a wonderful book by an author named Roland Allen called The Spontaneous Expansion of the Church. And here's what he observed. In the first century, people were so in love with Jesus and so filled with joy, you couldn't stop them from talking about Jesus. They had to. They just talked about Jesus. Man, that sounds pretty easy to me. It's a lot harder for me than that. <laughs> there weren't evangelism programs. They didn't need them. People found a way to talk about Jesus with those that they knew. Last thing. We're saying when grace advances here, are three things that match it. When a life is under the management of the spirit of the grace of Jesus, you can tell. Last thing is the process of conversion. It's verses 9 and 10. Let me apologize that... Um, the verses, I think, in your outline aren't the ESV, so just bear with me for that little faux pas. That's on me, not on Chris. Paul says, For they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for a son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Do you see what you see in these two verses? A beautiful definition of conversion. You ever wondered, what, what do I need to do to be converted? Here it is. Turn, serve, wait. And I, I want to tease these out just for a moment. I want to look at these three things. And I want you to know this. Yes, these are the three critical verbs in conversion, but serious believers who are growing their whole life also do these three things in personal transformation the rest of their life. So you initially turn, serve, and wait, but we're doing that our whole lives long. Or if you want to put it in theological jargon, sanctification is about turning, serving, and waiting, okay? So first of all, turn. He says you turned to God from idols. Why is Paul talking about idols? And he writes, a New Testament scholar has a commentary on 1 Thessalonians, and he says that to turn from idols in Paul's day would be as dramatic as anyone in our culture turning from electricity, car, cell phone, television, you name it. You don't hear anybody who says, I'm turning my back on that. It's just so much a part of life. And he explains it in that culture, the gods of the Greeks and Roman paganism were everywhere. So if you wanted to plant a tree in your yard, you had to pay homage to that god. If you were going on a trip, you'd have to go to the shrine of the god of travel and buy traveling mercies. If you were marrying your kids off, you would have to do serious and costly worship to that relevant deity. That was absolutely expected, and at every turn... In a city, there were gods, they were unpredictable, sometimes at war with themselves. You could, and here's the point, you could never do too much to placate them, to get them on your side. Never do too much. 
And the point of an idol was this. The point of an idol is that you serve them for the power behind them. You wanted the power of that idol to give you what you wanted. You worshipped in order to get blessings. Happiness, safety, favor, health, status, protection. Translated, you sought the power of an idol to make your life what you wanted it to be. You sought the power of an idol to make your life what you wanted it to be. Do you see where this might be going? You sought the power of an idol to make your life what you wanted it to be, however you define blessing. Now, you're probably thinking, Mike, I've never seen an idol like that in our culture. Go to India, you'll see them on the country roads. You'll see the idols people pray to in the Hindu gospel. I, I understand. You've never seen an idol in our culture. But what's the same? What's the same 2,000 years later? It is the propensity of the human heart to give ourselves to something. Something. We all are looking to something to give power to our lives to make them what we want. <laughs> there is a power you are seeding to give your life meaning. There's something we all prize, we esteem, we cherish, we find most delightful for our souls. And oftentimes it's a good thing that you have made the only thing. And there's tons of examples, beloved. Tons of examples. It could be ministry. It could be missions. Career, money, relationship, your appearance, fitness, health, family, popularity, money, comfort, pleasure, sensuality, possessions, autonomy, control, approval, being right, being competent. Lots of things that in our heart of hearts we are saying that's the thing I need for life to have meaning and purpose. And if it isn't God, it's an idol. The New Testament drives idolatry to the heart. Uh, Ephesians 5.5, listen to this carefully. Ephesians 5.5, Paul writes, you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of God. Paul says if your life is marked by coveting, that's idolatry, you obviously don't belong to Jesus. <laughs> and I'm not saying struggling and fighting against the, the sin of coveting. I'm saying that's really who you are. You're desiring something. And what's wrong with coveting? You're desiring something that isn't God. And that's an offense to God. And if your whole life is built on something that isn't God, why should God let you into his kingdom when you die? You don't want him now. He's not going to want you then. There's a warning. So desiring is desire, excuse me, covenanting is desiring anything more than God, putting anything in the place of God. It's really saying, look, I need this in order to be whole as a human being. You believe your life doesn't have purpose apart from God and the addition of something else. And the addition of something else. And why is idolatry insanity? God is enough. And your soul was never built to be filled with any of these things that I mentioned earlier. You're built for the presence of God. And idolatry is incarceration because the thing you are looking to give you power to make you fulfilled, that thing controls you. So what is conversion? Obviously, turning from it. 
turning, the Old Testament prophets, turn, Hebrew, shuv, turn to me, turn your back on it, forsake it. The New Testament equivalent is repent, metanoia, change of mind, change of direction, turn from the idols, see them as detestable, odious, useless, enslaving. They're awful for you. And when you give your life to an idol, it's awful for people that live around you. Repent. Compare idols to God. <laughs> idols are dead. God's alive. Idols are false. God is true. Idols are many. God is one. Idols are tangible. God's intangible. Idols are created. God's the creator. Idols are deaf. God hears. Idols are mute. God speaks. And the beautiful thing about the doctrine of idolatry is it explains why you're miserable. It explains why your life is full of frustration because if I'm putting anything at the center of my life, I'm feeding on death. And so I better be miserable. It's a severe mercy of God that if you know that your life is not under the control of the Holy Spirit and you're miserable, that's a good thing. God is not letting you be happy and fulfilled because he's the only one that can. So you turn, what's the next verb? Serve. You've got to turn from something to something else. And that, is, of course, is something more beautiful than your idols, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. When you turn to Jesus, you see the one who came not to serve, but to be served and to give his life a ransom for many. We serve in the pattern of the beauty of Jesus, the great servant. Bob Dylan said it. You've got to serve somebody. And here's the difference between Christian service and serving idols. In the ancient world, idol Worship always produced fear. Is the God placated? You never knew you sacrificed enough to the God. And the Christian gospel answers that in this. Our God is satisfied in Jesus. If you belong to Jesus and you have Jesus and Jesus has you, you have already offered God all the worship, all the obedience, and all the service you owe him. You are free to serve him as failing, not that we're trying to. We're free to serve him perfectly. We're free to serve as broken sinners. We're free to serve in joy and confidence and gratitude. Everything I have is in Christ already. Turn, serve, and finally wait. He said, you're waiting for a son from heaven who's rescued us from the wrath to come. <laughs> Somebody rescued you from the wrath to come? Can you wait to see them? You can't wait to see them. You want to see their face. It's like the relatives that's driving in for the holidays and the long trip, they're supposed to get there at six. At about five or six, you're out looking out the window. You can't wait for them to arrive. <laughs> Jesus is arriving one day. And those who love him and have experienced his grace can't wait. In fact, the idea of waiting means you're ready. More to say about that. Jesus talks about that in the Gospels. We'll come to that later in this epistle. I just want to make this point as we close. In the ancient world, when the pagan rulers came to town, they came to rule over you. When Jesus comes again, you're going to rule with him. The pagan rulers had to stamp the imprint of their image on your coins. Jesus puts the imprint of his image in your heart so you can know him and be like him. And when you believe that, you're going to be under good management and people will tell. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, bring us 
under the glorious management of your spirit. Apply to us, Holy Spirit, the wonderful work of Jesus. Have mercy on my brothers and sisters and me that we would suffer with joy, we would sound forth the word of the Lord as clear and loud as trumpet and thunder, and love to see our Jesus known in word and deed. Make Wallace that for your glory. Amen.